ask you to just bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us as we study and seek your word and your desires for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 9. And here we get to see the nickname of Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. And here's going to be the first time when we really see him talking about weeping. And all through this book, we're going to see him going, I was weeping or I ran out of tears. I needed more tears. I am feared, you know, this is one of our first times when we see him weeping and saying he doesn't have enough tears. So we're going to start at verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, assembled assembly of treacherous men. For they have bent their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, says the Lord. So we're going to stop there just for that. And he's going, oh, you know, and this literally means give. Give my head waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. He's saying, I want to be crying. <laughs> you know, I want to have tears because of the evil of the people. And there's times when I look at what's going on, and I do, I may not cry, you know, directly, but I am heartbroken at what I see our nation doing, what I see the church especially doing as a, as a whole, as a, as a Catholic small c church. And if you don't understand, uh, Catholic means united or one. And so in, in, when you read books on doctrine, you'll read that we all are the Catholic church small c. Now the Roman Catholics took over that term and made it a great big c meaning their church. And their idea was that we are the one church. Uh, but then they changed much of the doctrines of God, so they were rejected by the Protestants with the doctrines they added to God. And, but as a church, as a, as a one Catholic body of believers, it is sad to see where the church is going and how far it is sliding and that does make me come to tears sometimes when I think of how far the church is moving from the Bible. How much they want to encourage people in their sin to keep coming to church. And usually when they're doing that, what they really want is the money that those people represent. And, you know, and even when, you, when I listen to these different preachers and everything on the radio, it irritates me that many of them take a good third of their show and talk about their need for money. You know, maybe once in a month or you know, once in a while doing that would be okay. But every time we hear them, they're talking about their need for money. And I'm going, where is your faith? Where is your conviction for God? You know, one of the things I tried to myself is not to talk about money very often because this is God's church. He's going to provide. And on, on our website and online, we just have a little something at the bottom of a couple pages saying, if you'd like to give, there's, here's how you give. And that's as far as we go. We never ask for anything. We make every one of those messages for the last seven years available for free. And never ask for anything. Why? Because I think it's God's. Number one, I know they're his messages. If they were mine, I would go, I need to be paid for my messages. But they're not my messages. They're God's messages. 
And so we see this, and you know, I sometimes get so burdened for where the church is headed to, heading in, and go, God, what's happening? We are in a great apostasy, even amongst churches. And for many of them, their their denominations and their seminaries have led them into these these problems. Their seminaries where the pastors are trained don't believe the word of God, don't accept the word of God. So they train pastors who don't believe the word of God. And it's really sad. Well, we've seen young Christians go to public colleges and stuff and get destroyed, and we expect them to have a hard time. Then we see these people going to go to seminaries to become pastors and have their faith destroyed is sad. You know, how can you have these, pa- these instructors in a Bible college that don't believe the word of God? And yet so many of them don't. And this is something that is so concerning to me. And how many pastors there are out there that don't teach God's word, don't teach sin, don't teach that there's judgment, don't teach in, about heaven, don't teach about uh, the end days. Because all they want to make you do is come to church, feel good, and, and leave feeling good. And, you know, I have no problem with making people feel good as long as they're feeling good in Christ. But if they're feeling good in their own flesh and their own sin, I don't want them leaving feeling good about that. I want them to understand that their sin is going to lead to consequences. And that without God, they should not be happy. And even with us, and we've talked about this several times, I am not a big fan of the whole idea of happiness anyway. Happiness means that I'm reacting to what goes on in my life and joy is very deep. Joy and peace is what I'm wanting to seek. Because joy is, my contentment is in God. I'm at peace. I understand that my eternal destiny is secure. And because my eternal destiny is secure, it doesn't matter what happens in this life. And this is very important for us to understand. I don't care what goes on in this life because I know I'm looking to the eternal future. And because I know God is in control of eternity and I know he's in control of the short term. And he sees things different than I do. Believe me, I understand. He sees things very different than I do and you do. And there's times when we just say, God, I don't understand why you would allow any of this stuff to happen, but I'm going to trust you. And that gives us that peace. And here Jeremiah is saying, I wish that I could cry, that I could weep day and night for the slain daughter of my people. He sees what is coming. This whole previous chapter, he's understood judgment is coming. Jerusalem is going to be carried away. Israel is going to be carried away. And all the people are saying, we live in, we live in Jerusalem. God's temple is right there on that hill in the center of the city. He'll never let his temple be destroyed. So we're secure. doesn't matter what we do. His temple's there, and he's not going to let it be destroyed. And that's a pretty sad thing. When we put something in front of God, and that's what they did, they put the temple before obedience to God and saying, well, that's where he lives. We know where he lives. We're not, we're not worshiping him, but we know he lives up there in that temple. So we're secure. And that was their word every time. And Jeremiah kept telling them, no, God is going to bring judgment, and that temple is going to be torn down. And that is not what they wanted to hear. They did not want to hear the temple is going to be torn down. It's going to be destroyed. And it says, 
in verse 2, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for the warfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them. Here he's like, is there a place outside of Jerusalem that I could just leave the people? And that's kind of a scary thought because it literally means to abandon. I want to put them out in the wilderness and just leave them there and not be with them. I think that God at this point in time was really wanting his people to repent. He wanted them to come to him. But he's saying, is there a place that I could leave them? Because he says, for they all adulterers and assemble an assembly of treacherous men. They're all adulterers. Now, this was in two formats. They were physical adulterers because sexual sin was running rampant, even in Jerusalem amongst his people. And they were spiritual adulterers as they worshipped idols. And the thing about this is the worship of most of these idols that they worshipped included orgies. All right, so this was when you worship these fertility gods and goddesses, part of your worship was an orgy. So these people were literal adulterers. They were spiritual adulterers and not seeing a problem with anything that they were doing. So here he's saying they are adulterers and they are assembly of treacherous men. Treacherous, deceitful, uh, not trustworthy. And this is what he's talking about for the nation. The nation is treacherous. And I think about in our world, how much adultery and fornication do we have going on in our world right now? How much treacherous and deceitful people do we have? You know, we live in a time when even if you have an ironclad contract, you may still not be able to make it stick because their lawyer may be better than your lawyer. And they'll find some way out of it because there is no trust, no honesty in the people. And you know, this is the thing that's very interesting. One of the things that businesses bewail is that they cannot, there is no integrity in their management. There's no integrity in their employees. Most of the bosses don't have integrity. And this is a problem. There's treachery amongst the people because they're doing what the fallen man does. And fallen man is treacherous, deceitful, <laughs> you know, all these things that go along with it. And it's hard for the world to understand because the world wants to say, well, people are basically good. They bought into the lie that people are all good and given a chance, they will do good things. So when something bad happens, they don't, it has to be somebody else's fault because that person's basically good. And if they're doing something bad, somebody else is the cause of it. So their answers for fixing the problem is to figure out why they were bad and try to figure out how they can stop why that person was bad. Instead of going to what God says, they have a wicked and deceitful heart. And they're just acting out as God said they would. And when you start the other way around, you're dealing with people totally differently. Because I know that somebody is wicked and deceitful, so I am not surprised when they are wicked and deceitful. I don't like it. I'm not happy with it, but I am not surprised. Oh my goodness, how could that person have acted just that way? I thought I could trust that person. No, I understand that, you know, basically I can't trust somebody. Unless they're going to be godly and they're showing me signs that they're godly, there's no way to really trust a person 
to be honest because of our sinful nature. The world, on the other hand, comes out with this idea that, well, most people are really basically good, so when they do bad, we got to figure out who made them bad. Yeah. And this is a very funny thing. When I was in school, they would all talk, and I'm going, what do you mean? Have you ever been with a young child, a baby? You know, how many of us taught our two-year-olds to be selfish? No, we had to teach them not to be selfish. How did we teach our infants to quit crying all the time because they want what they want and they want it now? And they make sure that we know that they are selfish. And our two-year-olds are selfish. They want every toy that they see. And it doesn't matter who else is there playing with the toy, they want every toy that they see. And we have to teach them to not be selfish. And these people that want to believe that people are basically good, I've asked them, well, why are these Well, your rules made them bad. You know, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, so just let them go, be spoiled and selfish and not deal with any of that, and it's okay. No, that just means they're going to get more selfish and more, you know. But that is not the way they think, because their thinking is that they are basically good. And if they're basically good, there has to be something else that's causing the problem. And here he's saying that the people are acting like their natural selves. Deceitful, adulterers, selfish. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. Verse 3 says, And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. So this is the idea. When you bend a bow, what are you preparing to do with your bow? Well, you're getting ready to shoot it. All right? And he says, they prepare their tongue to shoot lies. Now, this is kind of a sad thing. But, you know, this is what I see in the world. You know, when Satan speaks, he lies. And unfortunately, the lost world has a problem with integrity. They usually will lie, or at least, even in their mindset, not tell the whole truth which is a lie by God's standards. They will tell you just enough that you need to know and nothing more. Well, I didn't really take advantage of you completely. You know, well, what did, what did you need when you took away the, the, uh, the uh, registration for the vehicle or the title of the house? What, what were you thinking you were doing? You know, well, you know, it was just, just the way it was. You, know. uh, you made it available, I took it. Okay, you know, uh, but how many times do people speak falsehoods and not speak truth? And this is something I've said it many, many times. In court, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But if you have a lawyer, your lawyer will tell you directly when you're on the, the witness stand, answer the question they asked and nothing more. Do not tell them the whole truth, just answer the question asked. And don't volunteer any information. I have heard that many times at work. We're going to have auditors and inspectors come through. Answer just the question they ask. Don't volunteer any information because we don't want you to give them something to, to, to look at. And it's sad because that's the world's definition of truth. You know, answer as little as possible and be as vague as possible, but don't speak the truth. Because God's definition of truth is the courts. The whole truth and nothing but the truth is God's standard, which is why it is part of our legal system. 
the way it's supposed to be. But the world has taken over our world, our legal system and redefined truth into saying, just tell as much truth as you need to tell them. The world's way of thinking. Uh, and this is very important for us as Christians to understand. Are we ready for the truth? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The, pro the problem is that truth sometimes hurts. Sometimes it may even get us in trouble to speak the truth because we are evil in ourselves and when we speak the truth we may admit and confess that we did something wrong. Which as far as God is concerned is a good thing. As far as the world is concerned it's not necessarily a good thing. Because they're always looking to blame. And this is the hard thing about the world right now. They're always blaming and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because what happened when they were when God was talking to Adam and Eve, he started with Adam. What happened? Well, the woman that you gave me, gave me this fruit and I ate of it. You know, his blame was actually both ways. God, it's that woman, and by the way, you gave her to me. You know, you know, and because she gave it to me and you gave her to me, so I ate this fruit. You know, so he's pointing both ways. You know, it's, it's your guys' fault, not my fault. Eve, all she did was blame the serpent. And the serpent, God didn't even give him a chance to speak because he was the, the, the devil and he knew the devil would lie. So he didn't even give the devil a chance to speak. But that blame game has gone on for all of time. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And we have an entire science right now, psychology. Well, let's find out who is to blame for the, your actions. Because your actions are not your fault. You're, you were warped by your parents or your grandparents or your brothers and sisters or somebody in your life warped you. Let's find out who it is. We'll blame them and then we'll figure out how we can maybe get you correct. Because we'll find out what started it and we'll try to get you correct. You were basically good. They warped you. Now we've got to get you back to your basic, basic design. And that's what psychology is all about. You know, find out what caused the problem, then reverse that problem. Instead of just admitting, hey, I'm a sinner. God says I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I admit that I'm a sinner, God is going to give me a new, new life, and he is the one that can change me. And that is the problem that we have in life. We have to first admit that we have a problem. And when we go through psychological tests, it's all, let me find out why I am what I am. Well, I can tell you why you are what you are. You're a sinner. Don't have to find out whether what grandma and grandpa did to you or mom or dad did to you or the abuser did to you. Yes, those things impact us. I'm not going to belittle the fact that those things impact us. But we were already sinners bent towards sin before those things hit us and helped us go the wrong way. And God doesn't care about why we're doing what we're doing because he says you have a free will. You have a choice. I can respond to the way that I was raised or not respond to the way I was raised. And we all see it. It's an amazing fact that I got saved because nobody in my family went to church. I went to church on my own. At six years old, I walked a block to go to church. At eight years old, I was walking a block to go to church. At 10 years old, I was getting on a church bus to go to church. There was nobody in my house that said, 
hey, Ralph, why don't you go to church? God put it in my heart to, to do. My dad at the time was a raging drunk. My mom didn't really care about much of anything going on you know, outside of the family and had her preoccupations. And yet God got hold of my heart. And we see it often where there is no reason for a child to come to God if you look at their family. You know, everything's bad about their family and yet God gets hold of them. And then sometimes you have families where everything is good. They should be, they should be, they're in church every week. Their parents are good, godly people reading the Bible at home, praying, and they turn out to be pure hellions because of their choices to what they face. We are accountable for our choice. And yes, circumstances play into it. And I'm not going to belittle the circumstances, but we still make decisions that are contrary oftentimes to our circumstances. And here God is telling the people, you are just a bunch of adulterers. You're a bunch of fornicators and, and, and liars and cheats. You're, you're preparing your tongues for lying. And then he says, he goes on from there, that he says, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. They are not even willing to stand up for truth. And this is sad uh, because how many people will not stand up to do what is right? You know, they get into the situation and the ideal way to do it is to just go with the flow. You know, just go with the flow. The boss is asking me to lie or cheat. I'm going to just lie and cheat because I don't want to lose my job. All my friends are doing it, so I don't want to stand out like a sore thumb and, and be criticized by my friends, so I'm just going to go down with the flow. Uh, I heard a pastor say that any dead fish can float downstream. And unfortunately, it's true. It is very easy to go downstream with everybody else. All right, so you've got these people. They're not being valiant or strong for truth. They're not going to stand up for truth. And he goes, and they proceed from evil to evil, and they know not me, saith the Lord. So they go from one evil thing to the next evil thing to the next evil thing, and there's no repentance involved in their life. And this is what we're seeing in today's world. One evil, and they get tired of that particular evil, it doesn't meet their needs, and they go to the next evil. And this happens over and over. If you're into alcohol, you start taking more and more to get the same experience. The drugs, the same thing. You need more and more to get the same experience. If it's sex, illicit sex, you need more and more and, and more varied and more violent and more, more harmful and degrading to get the same illegitimate feeling from it. And evil leads from evil to evil, to deeper evils. And then once you get to where you can't do that, you go to another evil and start doing the same process with that. And this is what God's saying. They are moving from evil to evil. And this is, do you remember, Jeremiah is preaching at the end of the southern kingdom. They're getting ready to be captured by Babylon. And so they are becoming evil. They are sinning freely. They are worshiping other gods. And, you know, Jeremiah on more than one occasion says, they're all adulterers, they're all liars, they're all, you know, that's how bad their sin is. They, they were definitely in that neighborhood going into doing what was right in their own eyes. And this is where we're at in our day and age. People are doing what is right in their own eyes. 
I know that they're going from evil to evil. And the God says, and they know not me. They don't discern me. They don't know me. They don't perceive me. We live in a world where so many people don't know God. And un even some Christians don't seem to know God. Now, I'm not saying they're not Christian. Maybe they asked Jesus honestly to come into their heart, but there doesn't seem to be a relationship with God that says, I know God. And they'll give you bad advice. They'll give you worldly advice. Everything about them is worldly. And sometimes that makes me wonder if they're really a Christian or not, but that's between them and God. But because they don't know God, they don't do what they need to be doing. And this is important. Do we know God? Are we in a relationship with God? Do we know his word well enough to know him and follow after what he is saying to do? And this is very critical because God says they're going from evil to evil because they do not know me. They're not following me. And this is a sad state of affairs that, that's being talked about. Verse 4 says, Take you everyone his take you take you heed every one of his neighbors and trust you not in any brother for every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanders and they will deceive everyone his neighbors and will not speak the truth they have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity your abomination your inhabit your habitation is in the midst of deceit the, through deceit they refuse to know me says the lord so here he's going in how really bad they are. <laughs> this is, when you read this, you're going, wow, Jeremiah, are you living in our day and age? Take heed of your neighbors. And literally, this heed is to guard. Guard every neighbor and trust not your brother. All right? This is pretty sad stuff when you can't trust your family. And what are we at in today's world? There are many families that they don't trust their own family members. In my family, we've always had keys to everybody's house and not a problem because we're trusted to be able to go in their house. But I know families that you would not trust anybody in your family to have a key to your house because you may not have anything left in your house. Uh, and so he's saying, and trust not your brothers for every brother will utterly supplant. And it's very interesting in here because in Hebrew, the word utterly and supplant are the same word and it's Jacob, Jacob heel grabber, the one who takes the place of somebody else. And that doubled up means intensified. He says, your brothers will try to supplant you, will try to trip you up. And this is sad when I've seen families that are this way, where people are always trying to get the better of somebody. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Now, it is the way our evil hearts work. It is, even in our cases, many times our inner being wants to take advantage of somebody. You know, uh, the idea that I found, I found money on the floor, it's mine. Well, no, it really still belongs to the person who lost it, and we should be trying to find out who lost it. You know, you're accidentally given too much change from the cashier. What's the world say? It's the cashier's fault. They were so stupid not to be able to count, it's mine. What should our attitude be? Hey, you gave me too much money. I have blown cashiers away all the time when I give them back. You know, hey, you, you gave me way too much money, or you gave me a few pennies too much. 
here, have the money back, because that is not what they're used to. And where are we standing? Are we doing what is right regardless, or are we willing to do things the world's way? What, how far can I go? How far can I get away? What can I get away with before people don't think I'm a good person anymore? Where people think that I'm bad? And this is where the world is. And I've heard it over and over from people. How close to this sin can I get before I have sinned? You know, and when I was dealing with teenagers, it was always, how close can I go before I've committed you know, adultery? Well, the fact that you're asking means you're already thinking about going too far. And it really needs to be going. And our question as a Christian shouldn't be how close to the sin can I get, but how far away from the sin should I stay away? I want to stay as far from the sin as possible, not, okay, can I watch these movies? Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, how, how close to the sin can I get before I'm finally crossing the, crossing the line? And I've already shared, you know, when we have liberty, anything that we have true liberty where I'm not worrying about it, I have liberty to do. Soon as I start wondering if it crossed the line, you've already crossed the line. It's, you've moved too close to the line and you need to stop thinking about whatever it is that you're looking at. And this is very true for us. You know, how close to a lie can I get before I've told a lie? Well, if you're already asking that, clo- that question, you're, you're too close to the lie in the first place. And salesmen will do this. You know, exaggerate the benefits of the pro- uh, product, exaggerate the, the warranties, exaggerate this. We need to be able to understand truth, righteousness, and knowing that people are utterly going to do what is wrong, given free reign to their sin. And as we get closer to the end days, we're going to see more and more free reign of sin. Because Jesus and the Old Testament tell us that in the end days, it'll be like the days of Noah, where men did what was right in their own eyes. Didn't matter what God said didn't matter what truth was, they just did what they thought was right. And when you're bending to your sin nature, what you think is right is whatever is good for you. That's what the sin nature does. Whatever is good for me is good. As long as I am getting what I want, it's good. And the sad thing is our educated people are taught just that. The ultimate pinnacle of success is to do what makes you feel good. And it's like, that's the ultimate. That's where they're trying to get to. And they're going, well, when you're helping others, well, that's okay, but that's not the epitome of, of where you're supposed to be. And I'm seeing what they, when I saw that the first time when I went to school, I'm going, flip that over. God's way is for you to do what's best for others, not what's best for you. And my teacher didn't appreciate that comment. And my teacher did not like that statement at all because this guy that wrote this up was famous. And all of psychology and, and, and uh, sociology is based upon his statement that your ultimate goal is self-actualization, doing what is best for me. This is where the world is. What is best for me? Because I'm the only one that's important. I am God, and if anybody doesn't meet me where I'm at, then they need to be punished because I am God. And when you've got a billion people all acting like they're God, and wanting to be served, it's going to be very interesting. Whereas Jesus said we're to serve one another. And I've said this from a Christian point of view, 
you know, if I'm serving everybody else and everybody else in the church is serving everybody else, I've got a lot of people serving me. Because we're all serving one another. And that works out a whole lot better than saying, okay, everybody serve me. I'm not going to serve you, but you need to serve me, which is what the world says. But when everybody is reaching out to serve everybody else and edifying and building up everybody, it's a whole different world. And God has a great plan if we would just implement his plan. And here he's saying these people are going to try to trip you up. They're slanderers. You know, your neighbor and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Slanderer is somebody who speaks evil of somebody else. And it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not. It's just making somebody look bad. How many people like to make other people look bad and walk around making other people look bad? And this is something that is very hard to understand because our desire is to make myself look good. My desire is to make others look bad compared to me. That's our heart. And then our tongue starts wagging and we start acting upon what we desire. And this is something that needs to be very careful. What are we saying about others? What are we doing toward others? You know, the old statement, if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything at all, is a very good piece of advice. Start speaking kind things, and it gets easier and easier to speak kind things. This is the problem that we have in our country right now. As soon as you give contrary opinion, what do they do? They don't attack your thoughts and your your statements, they attack you as a person. One of the things I learned with a debate, as soon as you attack the person, you've lost the debate. Now the world may not recognize it, but they've lost the debate. Basically they said, I don't have any argument against you, so I'm gonna attack you personally. And as soon as they attack you personally, they're admitting that they have no valid argument. And this is a sad thing, but this is what's going on in our world. We cannot have debate in our society right now because each side attacks the person. You know, they're bad, they're bad. You know, they, they, they can't believe this. Look at how evil they are. Let's just look at the issues and talk about the issues and deal with issues. If we start attacking the people, then we're saying, I have no argument against it. And we as Christians have an argument against it. We have what God says even whether they believe it or not, does not matter. God's word does not return void. And so when somebody disagrees with me, I give them what God says. They don't like it, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me whether they accept God's word or don't accept God's word. Because one thing I know, ultimately truth will win out. But I also know it's not worth arguing. I've learned this the hard way because I've got a couple people in my family that they have to be right no matter what. Even when they are completely wrong, they have to be right. And it does no good to argue with them. You can make good points, you can point out all the facts to them and they're still convinced that they are right. It's not worth arguing over. There's very few things that I'm going to argue over and I've shared this with you guys many times. If somebody wants to disagree that the Bible is absolutely true, I will fight hard on that one. It is absolutely true. If they want to fight over, you know, how do you get to heaven, I'm going to fight over that one because there's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ. After that, there's not a whole lot I'm going to argue with. 
How do I, you know, am I saved eternally or not? Yes, I absolutely believe in eternal salvation. And I feel sorry for anybody who believes you can lose your salvation because it's not scriptural. And, you, and you're building your case upon works. But is it worth breaking up a fellowship over? No. You want to believe that you can lose your salvation? Go ahead and live in that insecurity. Go ahead and live in works. I want to live under God's grace and his mercy that he did the work and he completed the work. Now, how do you get the Holy Spirit? Do you get him the minute you're saved or do you have some second filling? Well, I'm going to go with you get him when you get saved. And then you have fillings you know, throughout time where the Holy Spirit comes more and more in you. But I have the complete Holy Spirit in me and I don't necessarily feel him all the time, but he's there. He lives inside of me and he didn't just drop a couple drops of the Holy Spirit into me. He came in and he dwells inside of me and he fills me. And whether I feel it or not does not matter. He is completely inside me. Jesus is completely inside me. The Father is completely inside me. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in me. And we need to understand the full God is in me. Whether I feel like it, whether I believe it, doesn't matter. When I get saved, he came to dwell inside me. And that's where we're at. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. God is not worried about whether I believe certain, certain doctrines, certain truths. He goes, I am telling you the truth. Believe the truth. Because if we understood everything there was to know about God when we first got saved, we would be instantly translated to God because we would have become God. And we're not that way. It's, he's going to take our entire life to help us get to know him better. And I personally believe that we'll spend all of eternity getting to know God better. Now, we'll get some definite insight when we can see him. All right, a lot, of, a lot of questions will be answered right off the bat. But, you know, God is still greater than we are. And we aren't becoming God when we get to heaven. We get to greater knowledge. We get a greater understanding. But I believe we'll be learning for all of eternity. And at some point in eternity, if possibly we learn everything that God knows, he'll just create more stuff for us to get to know. Because he knows everything and we'll never know everything. He is outside of time and even in heaven there's a form of time because in Revelation it tells us that the tree of the knowledge of uh, the tree of life bears fruit in its seasons. Now what is a season in heaven? I have no idea. But I do know there's some form of time in heaven. Different from what we have, completely different. Maybe runs a lot slower than what ours does. Who knows? I just know that God says there's some form of time up there. You know, but it's still going to be eternal. We still will leave this world and we'll, we will live for eternity. Whatever that means. And you can't even measure eternity if there's nothing to measure it by. And so we know that something is going to be there. What it is, we don't know. It is very interesting. The more I study the Bible about heaven, the more I don't understand about heaven. Uh, streets of gold, cities, gates that, have, that aren't going to be closed because there's no, no, no darkness, no, no need for light because God is light and he comes from all directions and, and yet there's gates that would be indicate that there's supposed to be something that can be closed and yet he says they never close because there's no night and there's going to be commerce going on and, and all these things are going to happen and it's like, God, I don't understand any of this. And I'm going, you know, and I don't have enough imagination to understand it in the first place. <laughs> but we have all of this going on 
And he says, they speak, they don't speak the truth, they are, have taught their tongues to speak lies, and they weary themselves with iniquity. This is scary when he talks about this. They will not speak the truth. Have you ever met anybody that seems to not be willing to speak the truth? I get them out of, I get them out of the prison. There are several guys out there that if they're speaking to you, you know they're lying. You know, they will not speak truth. I've met people outside the prison that seem to not be speaking truth. And he goes, they have taught their tongues to speak lies. Yeah. And I'm not going to judge people, but I've met people that it's like, you're speaking, you're lying. You know, and there's the old joke, you know, how do you know a politician is, is lying while well, their lips are moving? You know, how do you know a car salesman is lying, his lips are moving? We have all those jokes, you know, but it is sad that some of it is true. That some people have taught themselves to lie. And you really can't believe hardly anything they say at all. And they weary themselves. They make themselves tired with seeking iniquity. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because I managed for a long time, and I had told several of my employees, if you worked it hard as, at doing your job as avoiding your job, you wouldn't have any problem getting your job done. I saw people work harder to not work than they would have if they had just worked. And yet, this is exactly what he's saying here. They weary themselves with iniquity, to do iniquity, to do evil. And it would be so much easier to do good because of the blessings that come with doing good and all of that stuff that happens, and yet they seek iniquity. And then verse 6 says, their inhabitation is in the midst of deceit. Their dwelling, their house, is in the middle of deceit. And I think about how many people spend all their time in deceit. They're thinking about deceit. They're filling their mind with the shows that are all about deceit. Their friends are all about deceit. You know, uh, how do I get out of this situation? Well, don't tell the truth. You've got to do this. And they think about getting away with something, not admitting anything. How can I make it somebody else's fault? And they live in this whole world of deceit. And this is the sad thing. This is one of the reasons TV and movies drive me nuts is because these people do whatever seems good and in the movies and the TV they get away with it. There's no consequence for disobeying God in the entertainment industry. And it really makes people think, well, they can get away with it, maybe I can. They're, people go, well, they all know it's entertainment. No, they don't. <laughs> Bottom line is, you fill yourself with enough garbage, it's going to affect the way you think. When you listen to some of the music is out there, the mu you know, and let's go even in the 60s, the good music about love. What was love in the 60s? I feel good. They make me feel good, and I make them feel good. And what happens when they fall in love and they get married and find out that that person doesn't always make them feel good? I never loved you. Well, because all my songs tell me that we're all supposed to feel good about each other, and now I don't feel good, so we never loved each other. And, you know, and those were innocent songs compared to what's being played today. And yet they led to a misunderstanding of what love is, 
which then led to deeper problems with what's going on. And now we have songs all about violence and murder and killing and raping and, and abuse. And then people wonder why we have so much maiming, killing, abuse and lying and all the stuff that's, and, and stuff that's going on. And we go, well, listen to the songs that they're listening to. Listen to those things and see why they're acting the way they are. Look at the movies they're watching. Look at the TV shows they're watching where people are disrespectful. Our kids are growing up watching shows where the kids are totally disrespectful to adults and getting away with it. And then we wonder why they're disrespectful to adults. And it's like, I even have shared this with my, with my daughter and my son-in-law and going, why, are you, why let your kids watch some of these shows? Going, did you watch what they were watching? You know, I'm not trying to criticize them, but you know, are you watching what they're watching? Because these shows are awful. They are awful today with what they represent. And we need to understand them when people fill their minds with this. We wonder why people are shooting everybody when they play games that are shooting and there's no consequence for shooting people in their games and beating them up. Now, is it wrong to play one of those games once in a while? Probably not, but to take a steady diet of it is not good. You know, because it will warp the brain. Well, I can get away with it in the game. And it scares me because now we've got military, and most of the military now is being shooting by drones and shooting things that are on a screen. And it looks like you're just playing a game. But there are real people behind those, those weapons that you're using. And they've been raised up in a game, you know, world of playing games and shooting people, and now they're sitting at a computer screen shooting people with real weapons and totally disconnected to the fact that they are harming people. It's a scary world that we live in. Very scary world that we live in. Then we've got AIs controlling most of this stuff as well. You know, they perceive a threat. We may be at war before we even know that there was a war started because the AI said, you know, uh, I see a problem. You know, if you've ever watched the movie War Games, <laughs> you know, where he hacked into the, you know, NORAD controls and almost started, started World War III because he thought he was playing a game. You know, and that was a little far-fetched in those days, but it wasn't that far-fetched. And where we are today, decisions are being made without people making decisions all the time. Our electric grid is corrected by AI. We've got too much going this direction, let's reroute it to go this way. And nobody's involved in it. The artificial intelligence is making the decisions on how to re reroute our our electric flow and our water flow and, and pull, pull things from other, other locations. And yes, it's probably good decisions, probably better decisions than would be made by humans, but it's still scary that it's being made totally independent of anybody looking it over. And all of this comes down to the deceit. You know, in many cases, it's probably good that some of that stuff is being done by AI. You know, no, no, no uh, bad decisions being put into it, as long as their programming is good. But we need to understand that people are dwelling in the midst of deceit. And when they're in the middle of deceit all the time, what is their reactions going to be? Deceit. This is why it is important for us as Christians to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together and so much more as we see the day approaching. We need other Christians. 
to be able to encourage. We were talking about it earlier, maybe even to have accountability to. Where you find two or three people in the church that you know that you can talk to and be fully open about your problems and they will pray for you and not tell others. And then you know that you can talk and they may look at you and say, how are you doing in that area when you're by yourself? And that's good. It's good for them to challenge you. It's good to have something other than what the world tells us. And this is why it is so important for us to come together. This is why my big problem in today's world is how many churches are really leaning on vi virtual church. Log in to the church. Now I'm glad it's available on one side. Some people are going to church that would never go to church. But virtual church does not make you accountable to anybody. I could say I went to church because I clicked on the, I clicked on the icon of the church and it was played while I was doing other things. I'm busy playing my games and cooking dinner and I'm barely listening, but I went to church. It was playing on my computer. Now granted, I was three rooms down. I never heard a word that was going on, but I went to church. And nobody knows that you weren't in church because it played, you know, we could track it to your computer. And there's no accountability, even if I did sit in front of it. Who knows whether I'm missing? Who knows whether, whether I'm paying attention? Who knows if I live in a, life, a lifestyle that doesn't honor God? But when I go to church and meet with people, number one, people know when you're missing. And, they, and it's nice to know that you're missed. You know, when they call you and say, hey, we missed you, what, what happened? But there's also an accountability that when people look you in the eye and say, how are you doing? And encourage you and build you up. There's that personal relationship that is very important for us. And it's very important that we have that personal relationship one with another because we are the body of Christ. Because this is the same thing. And then Paul talked about the church being a body. He goes, there's many, many members of that body. You know, and we think about this, you know, I go, well, I don't like this hand and I cut my hand off. It's going to die. You know, I set it aside. It's going to die. It's going to shrivel up and go away. And I'm going to go, wow, what happened to my arm? Well, you cut it off. Well, no, I didn't. I don't remember doing it at all. You know, you, you know, and it's very important. And then we'd miss our hand. You know, and this is something that's very important. When people do not come to church that are supposed to be at church, there's a part of the body missing. There's the part that they, uh, for the job that they were supposed to do that is missing. And we really have to understand that there's no part of our body that's unimportant. You know, uh, science have tried to say, well, those were leftover evolutionary things, but no, every time we find out and think it's that way, they used to think that the appendix was an extra item that wasn't needed. The tonsils were extra items that didn't need, and then we found out they were very critical to our disease-fighting capabilities. Even though there were little tiny things left over, they thought, but they were critical to the health of the body. Now, if you don't think you need any of your toes, try taking the toe off once, once at some time. The big toe balances, gives you balance. The little toe holds all your weight. Get rid of either one and you've got a problem. Now you can compensate, you can make it work, but it's still something that is a problem. You know, we need to be very careful. We're all important in God's kingdom. And if Satan has lied to you and you don't think you're important to the kingdom, don't accept that lie. Talk to God and say, God, what is my part in the kingdom? because everybody has a part. Now what that part is, sometimes I might know, sometimes I don't know.
But what is your part? Between you and God. We need servants. We need teachers. We need just people who are praying. We need people who are givers. We need all kinds of people that do what God has told them to do and be lifted up. And this is what's important. Where are we? How important you know, are we going to be? Are we going to walk with God in the direction he wants? Are we going to live in the deceit of the world? And Satan loves to deceive us. He loves to come up and tell us, you're worthless, you're terrible, you're, you're awful, just look at all the bad things you're doing. And you know what? From a human point of view, he's probably right. We are worthless, terrible, and awful, and sinful. But from God's point of view, we are saved, redeemed, and perfect in the righteousness of Christ. And he goes, I've got a plan for you. Don't let Satan lie to you. Don't let him make you think that you're nothing. Because we are God's children. And God is not going to let his children be nothing. He's going to give us what we need. He's going to give us the strength to get through what we, whatever it is he's going to put us through. And he says, I am with you always. Even to the ends of the world, he is with us. And that's good news. That is the great news. He is not going to abandon us. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us always to understand who we are. Help us to walk with you in spite of what's going on around us and all, all the destruction and criticism of the world and, and everything that the world is going. Help us focus on you at all times. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.